Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Movie Geeks United. Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now was released in theaters on August 15, 1979, under a shroud of mystery and scandal. No other production in recent history had undergone such calamity. Would this ambitious war epic represent the downfall of the already legendary Godfather director? Once the world finally feasted their eyes upon Coppola's hallucinatory masterpiece, they were equally stunned and mystified. The film's massive scope and wholly unique vision was something none of us had witnessed on the screen before, and in the 40 years since its initial release, we're still penetrating its depths of accomplishment. Now, audiences have another opportunity to admire the film in a stunning third, and in Coppola's words, final cut of the film which was recently showcased in limited theatrical IMAX screenings and will release on Blu-ray on August 27th. In this episode, we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of this landmark film by featuring an archived interview between Arenada Diaz of our sibling podcast Back by Midnight and the film's editor, Walter Murch. That interview will play right after this clip from our own 2009 interview with Coppola himself, where he addresses how he might take a different approach to Apocalypse Now if he were making it today. If today you were going to make something like Apocalypse Now, would you still shoot on location, or would you give in more to doing a lot of it on the computer, a lot of more the effects and everything? Well, that's an interesting question, because a lot of my thinking and and my... um, my conviction that the cinema was going to be electronic came from <laughs> sitting in the mud for hours upon hours waiting for the helicopters to arrive and being frustrated because you know the pilots of those helicopters were afraid of the explosions that were going on below so they were usually you know 10 feet higher than they were supposed to be and any shot of apocalypse now where you see a lot of helicopters You've got to realize that there were another 10 uh, higher than you could see because they were afraid to come down low. So there were many frustrations, and of course the impact of the of the economic, you know, the the, the, the you know, uh, the financial implications were so great that probably one wouldn't attempt a movie like that today uh, without uh, uh, you know benefiting greatly. Now you know the use of effects and and and, and all the uh, uh, the, the bag of tricks that you have at your at your fingertips today doesn't have to be in your face effects that can be subtle and they can right. they, they can be very convincing uh, but certainly in the days of war movies like Apocalypse or even Patton before it everything was done for real I think the first time I saw the implication of what could be done in a new way of thinking was when Stanley Kubrick did Spartacus, and there's a famous sequence where the Roman legions are advancing, and a whole group of them advance and then stop, and then a whole other group of them advance and stop. And that wasn't done electronically; it was done, you know, with optical printing. But it showed how you could manipulate um, a big crowd scenes in in a way that would save, you know, a trillion extras. And and, right, and, the, right. and, and the die was cast, I think, at at that moment. And uh, in answer to your question, you know, I don't know. Uh, deep down in my heart, I, I there are some films I'd love to make if it were possible to finance such a, 
a big production, uh, and, and there's one story in particular that a, bi- a biographical story that who knows when I'm 80, oh, 85 years old, should I be lucky enough to live that long? I would have to direct on a on a donkey in order to get up and down the hills. <laughs> and uh, that one, I think I would do without. I would do without uh, the. You know, there is no movie made today that doesn't, in some way, benefit from digital effects. Even even when you don't see it or notice it, it's uh, it's yeah. just a, it's just a, it's just there, and it's a service, right. and it's become cheaper and cheaper every day right. to use it. You know, 15 years ago it was a big deal to use a digital effect or or a compositing effect to take the sky out and remove the television antennas, but now it's really uh, uh, modest cost, and, and, and everyone is doing it. Yeah, now it's another tool in the the artist paint box. It's uh, for sure, and it's it's a it's a miracle. It's it's a it's a wonderful era right now, in terms of uh, where the technology has uh, become comfortable. Uh, uh, even the projectors for movie theaters, you know, we struggle to get a black and white film print to look as good as the as the the present generation of uh, of electronic projection that's going to sweep through all the theaters already is sweeping through all the theaters. Many benefits will accrue to to it. You know, it doesn't have to be misused as as people are, are fearful of. Right. Okay. In 1976, following the critical and financial success of The Godfather Parts One and Two and The Conversation, filmmaker Francis Ford Coppola set for the jungles of the Philippines to make what he thought would be the Irwin Allen of war films, a thrill ride into the heart of darkness. Three years later, following typhoons, budget overruns, illness, and madness, what emerged was Apocalypse Now, one of the great cinematic achievements in the history of the medium. As Coppola breathlessly once said, our movie is not about Vietnam, it is Vietnam. From the death trip opening sequence, one of the greatest melding of image and music ever committed to celluloid, to the ride of the Valkyrie helicopter raid sequence, to the questing concluding climax showing Marlon Brando coming to terms with his status as a legend. Apocalypse Now, like Raging Bull a year later, was a summing up of not only America's mood at the close of the 1970s, but American cinema itself. Late last week, I had the honor of speaking with Oscar-winning film editor and sound designer Walter Murch, who is responsible for Apocalypse Now, but also for THX 1138, and was was in pioneer in sound design, including the creation of what we is now the standard of 5.1 surround sound. It is a wonderful interview, in-depth, and a lot of factoids about Apocalypse Now. So here is my interview with Oscar-winning editor and sound designer, Walter Mertz. As a really young teenager, like uh, 11 and 12, mm-hmm. I played around a lot with the early tape recorders that had just been made available you know, on a, on a consumer basis. Right. And I discovered on my own that you could record something and then cut it up into little bits and then scotch tape those bits together in a different order than you recorded it. Um, so I wasn't working with image yet, but I was I was already working with sound. And it was just kind of a, a serendipitous discovery that I made on my own that I later on learned was 
you know the the basis for for all of the work that we do in in film. Uh, the other thing was a screening, I think, in the late fifties. Uh, so I must have been sixteen or seventeen. Uh, I went to see Breathless, uh, Godard's film, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't know what the rules of film grammar were uh, consciously, anyway. Uh, but I knew that 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 they were being broken. That that this approach to a film, which worked, you know, I was I was I was very affected by the film. But I knew that the way it told itself was breaking conventions that I wasn't really aware of yet. So I I uh, set myself a goal to become more aware of what those conventions were and and how you could break them. Well, and then you go and uh, you become part of a of a group in, of uh, UCLA film students. I guess some would say probably the part of the first true real generation of UCLA film students of Lucas and Coppola and other and other Milius and other people. And I'm just curious that it, it seems like in some of the readings that you know one has done about this era that when y'all were together, it seems like early on it became kind of this. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're going to be sound and editing and one person was going to be writing and one person was going to be directing. And it seemed like it was just kind of this collaborative thing of everyone's strengths coming in, coming together to for the a greater purpose. Is that true or was there something that even a little more to the dynamic? Yeah, no, it's basically true, although there were two film schools involved. There was USC, uh, which is where George Lucas and I went to school, and then there was UCLA, which is uh, where Francis Coppola and Carol Ballard uh, went to school. Um, but, you know, we were we were all aware of each other, and we went to each other's screenings, and we uh, kind of harassed the other guys, and they harassed us, And but it was all... Uh, you know, we we were knew that we were all young, aspiring filmmakers uh, together and trying to change an industry or a business or an art that uh, we felt needed some kind of uh, new impetus and and the 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 kind of collaborative uh, let's do everything that we can do uh, that. Uh, ethic that came out of the film school, uh, which encouraged us to, to be uh, not to not concentrate in on only one area, but to, to experience all different aspects of filmmaking. We, we tried to push that into uh, the professional filmmaking aspect. So, you know, I would be mixing uh, one of Francis's films, but at the same time, Francis would be on his hands and knees trying to re-solder the connection to the capacitor. Uh, and he, only he understood the electronics of this thing, even though I was the guy who was mixing it. Um, so, um, and okay. on THX 1138, even though I was uh, hired to do the sound, I also uh, was hired to work on the screenplay with George. Uh, so it it uh, there, there was a real uh, desire uh, to cross barriers and to 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 do everything that we could possibly do to investigate all of this uh, this uh, the potentials of filmmaking. And you know uh, the the kind of the accepted history is that because of the in, 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 uh, invention of television 
uh, Hollywood, you know, audiences were staying home. So Hollywood started to make the, the visual theater-going experience uh, worthwhile of leaving their home. So we got all these widescreen formats and and so forth. And it, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious, was there, if you knew, if you know in particular an impetus of, well, we've done that with the visuals, now we need to, let's do something with the sound because up to a certain point, you know, stereo or, you know, multi-track, it was kind of saved for either roadshow musicals or 70 millimeter, uh, you know, roadshows, but it wasn't, it, it hadn't trickled down to like, you know, just your your Western or, or your, right. you know, your action film or so forth. And so I'm curious, was there, if you know, or what you feel is maybe the impetus of, you know, great sound doesn't have to be just relegated to the 70 millimeter films or right. musicals. Right. Well, that was certainly uh, a, dr- a driving force. Uh, although, just speaking personally, I didn't care anything about that at all, and I, I wasn't being driven by anything uh, to do with the marketing of film. I just loved sound, and I loved how sound interacted with the image, and I just wanted to do that in every possible way. So there, there, there are also really two aspects to creative use of sound. There, Of course, there is the, I, I guess what you might call the expanded format, which is um, more channels, more high fidelity, you know, and, and, and to a certain extent we all wanted that. But there, really more importantly is how do you use sound creatively to help you tell your story. And for that you really don't need um, stereo uh, at all. You, you can make a very effective film uh, using sound and image together in, in mono. Um, so, I don't know, THX 1138 was all done in mono, uh, Godfather was all done in mono, Godfather 2 was all done in mono. We only began to work in stereo with, uh, uh, with Apocalypse Now, which was in the late 1970s. Right, and I'm just curious, and this is just kind of a, I'm curious in a historical footnote way, you know, now, uh, since 3D has now become kind of a, uh, uh, you know this this safety crutch for a lot of Hollywood studios, it, it seems, and and it's all because now there's more theaters equipped to show 3D films, mm-hmm. and before they were resistant because there weren't enough theaters. And I'm curious, was this was there an aspect to this that you know a lot of theaters for a while weren't even equipped to do multi-channel? Uh, yeah, no, that's certainly the case. It, it one of the big things that pushed. Dolby Stereo into uh, as many theaters as it did was the success of Star Wars, uh, and George had uh, made a you know very uh, adventurous soundtrack and had used six-track sound in 70 millimeter to do that, um, and Dolby Stereo Optical, uh, which was uh, a, a new format, was just coming online in 1976-1977 and uh, George wanted the film to play like that and so the deal was if you want Star Wars you have to have this equipment to play it and people were making so much money on Star Wars that uh, they were uh, and so anxious to get the film that they would buy this equipment so it, it and it usually takes something like that uh, you know like an avatar a huge success of avatar is something that 
brings uh, a lot. If you want to show Avatar, you have to have the projectors to show it, and so the the, the success of the film pushes the technology into the marketplace. Right, right. I'm curious. You know, you mentioned The Godfather one and two and so forth. So I am curious. Uh, you know, now when DVDs come out and movies get released. They always do a, a remix of the sound and upgrade it to obviously 5.1, which you invented. And, mm-hmm. and I'm curious if uh, if you have a, a preference of like, well, yes, we could uh, we can upgrade it, but I kind of wish you know I I wish people would listen to Godfather and you know prefer the mono mix to right. what we did. Do you, do you have a preference or do you just you don't mind the upgrading? Um. You know, it's kind of on a case-by-case basis. The for the the um, DVD of Touch of Evil, um, even though it's uh, technically all five channels are there, we we just made it mono, so that it, it is the way Wells uh, wanted it, mm-hmm. um, and and just simply because he isn't around anymore, he died back in 1985. Mm-hmm. Um, we were reluctant to make the film into stereo because we would need his guidance in order to know how to do that. So we we left it in mono. Uh, for the conversation, uh, Francis's film, which was originally in mono, we did a 5.1 on it, but it's very modest. Uh, the, the music is in stereo, um, and occasionally the surround channels and occasionally the subwoofer channels are activated but it, but it's very uh, you, you would almost be forgiven for looking at the film and thinking that it was just in mono um, Godfather 1 and 2 are slightly more expanded uh, but not really very much uh, so it's 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 uh, I, I, I would hesitate to uh, do a full-blown uh, 5.1 mix for for a film that had been originally in mono. Yeah, yeah. I kind of admire whenever they re-release uh, Kubrick's films on, on DVD and Blu-ray. They 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 still keep it in. You know, it's funny to, to it, it's funny, but it's also quite. It, you realize how good it is. Like something like Full Metal Jacket is just in its mono mix. Yeah, no, it, it relates to what I was saying earlier. Just the, you know, once once you adjust yourself to the parameters of any format, what you really then concentrate on is the creative use of the kind of sounds that are being used and what placement they have and how they relate to what's going on with the story and the image and how all of that uh, boils together. I mean, Touch of Evil has a fantastically adventurous soundtrack, but it's in it's in mono. Right. Well, and Kubrick, uh, even in his mono films, he he mixed with with a uh, with a restricted dynamic range. So he wasn't even taking advantage of the full potentials of the mono mix, um, because and that was a creative decision on his part was to keep the loudest sounds in the film not that much louder than average dialogue. Right. Well, I guess uh, we should talk about Apocalypse Now, which is what we're here to talk about. And then, uh, I guess, uh, I mean, so you, you had a, quite a task on this because you were also you were not only uh, the uh, sound sound designer, if you will, but also the editor on this film. So, so you saw two massive 
you know, cast on this film. And so I assume editing came came first. And um, if I'm not mistaken, there was over a over a million feet of film that was uh, that was printed, and there were teams of editors kind of just going through this film at a certain at a certain point. Is that is that correct? Yeah, there there were three picture editors on the film at any one time. Uh, I, so I was one of those editors, and in fact, I was a late comer to the process. I, I didn't start working on Apocalypse Now until after all of the uh, primary footage had been had been shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had three jobs on the film. I was one of the picture editors. I was the sound designer, which is uh, to say, I was responsible for the overall. Uh, integration of the sound and image, uh, and coming up with uh, ideas and approaches for that, and the, the designing of the the 5.1 soundtrack, which was uh, originated on on Apocalypse Now. Uh, but I was also one of the re-recording mixers, so I was sitting at the desk um, alongside uh, Mark Berger and Richard Beggs, and we were um, we were you know. Pushing the faders and making all of this, and panning the sounds around the room and making all of this, all of this happen. But we had a lot of time to do it, relatively <laughs> speaking. I was on the film for almost two years, uh, and that was after the photo- principal photography. So, um, yeah, there was a lot to do, uh, but we had the time to do it. Let's let's talk about the 5.1, which was this was the first time to use 5.1. What was the genesis of 5.1, and well, and also tell people specifically what is 5.1 because I think unless you're not an audiophile, uh, yeah. people just they just accept well, it's 5. Point, they accept 5.1 as a standard. But to, what exactly? What is 5.1? What? Well, to to take that question first, it's um, it's when we were doing it, we just called it six track. <clears throat> the reason it's called 5.1 is that it's it's five channels of sound, like ordinary stereo is two channels of sound. Mm-hmm. This is five channels of sound with an extra channel which carries only super, super low frequencies on it. So you would never find dialogue or uh, you know, uh, birds birds or music on that. It would just be the kind of the, the, the frequencies that give oomph to um, to whatever else is going on on in the rest. So, of those the remaining five channels, there are three channels of sound behind the screen: uh, left a speaker, a right speaker, and then one speaker in the center. And then there are two channels of sound in the in the rear of the theater and the sides. So there is a left back and sides, and then there is a right back and sides. So it's it's also what we call split surround. It surrounds, but it has a directionality to it, right. and that allows you to take a sound and pan it, and move it all the way around the theater from the left, uh, from the right rear to the left rear to the left front, and then across the screen, which is how the first sound in Apocalypse Now how it moves the, the sound of that uh, those helicopter blades as they move around the theater. So it had its origins in uh, you know, when Francis was uh, shooting Apocalypse Now. He heard some music by Tomita, the Japanese composer who works electronically. 
and this this had been done in quadraphonic sound, which is four channels, uh, kind of like a speaker in the corner, in each corner of a square room would be a quadraphonic uh, soundtrack. And he loved what he heard, and he said, "I want this is how I want Apocalypse Now to sound." And in talking to me about this, uh, he said, "Well, see if see if you can make this happen somehow." Um, and this was not an established format for motion pictures at the time, so I started investigating it and uh, uh, came to the realization that we re- we we needed at least five channels uh, because if you put one speaker in the corner of uh, of a theater in each corner of a theater. Um, the the dialogue for the film would tend to skew to the left for somebody sitting on the left or to the right for somebody sitting on the right. So we needed an extra channel of the center speaker right behind the screen, uh, and 90% of the dialogue for the film would go to that speaker. And then Francis said that he also wanted the explosions and the music to have this super low frequency so that when they happened, you felt them um, as much as you heard them. Um, so you felt them in your gut um, uh, as, as much as in your ear. And that meant another channel, which would have just this super low frequency on it. And that's, that's uh, you know, over the course of a, probably a year, that's eventually how this all evolved into the the, the format that is now just the, it's the standard format for motion pictures. When you mix a motion picture now, that's that's the format that you do it in. Um, whereas when we were making Apocalypse Now, this really didn't exist. This this was a format that we were creating for this film uh, itself. And part of Francis's original dream was that uh, this film would play. <laughs> Only in one theater in the country, somewhere in the geographic center of the country, in Kansas somewhere, and uh, it would be, I guess, what you'd recognize today as an IMAX theater. You wanted to build a huge theater that had a big screen and this fantastic sound system, and people would come from all over the country to this theater to see the film. Um, and it would be very long at that time. He, he thought the film might be five or six hours long, and you. You'd see two and a half hours of the film, and then there would be a break. You'd have dinner at this place, uh, talk about the film, and then you'd see the last uh, two and a half hours. So there was this uh, kind of wonderful, mad dream for for a sort of Mount Rushmore theater that uh, would attract people. But the, the residue of this that, that has stayed with us is, on the one hand, the 5.1 format, which is how... All, almost all films are, are done today. And the IMAX theater, which uh, have proliferated over the over the country, every big city now has has at least one IMAX screen. Right. Uh, well, and just as a uh, a footnote, I'm curious, just you know, explain real quickly what what exactly because now you're seeing in some mixes uh, and on Blu-rays and some theaters you're seeing. Uh, 6.1 and even 7.1. What does that do? Uh, right. Well, these are, um, um, let's say they're uh, extensions of, of that, just adding adding more channels uh, 
to principally to the back so that instead of having just a left and a right in the back there's a sort of mid left uh on the side of the theater and then a back uh left behind your head um and the same thing for the right that would be 7.1 6.1 um there was uh, uh an att- i think that's where there is a channel in the ceiling of the theater so that sounds can seem to come from right above the audience. Right. Um, um, but, uh, well, I guess to, to, to get back to Apocalypse Now, and so, you know, you, uh, the opening shot, which is one of the most famous shots in film history of this, uh, we see this napalm explosion, we see these mm-hmm. uh, kind of the, the bottom of this helicopter kind of going by in shadow, right. and then we hear these, these, uh, these blades, and then the and then the Doors music comes on and, and the Doors music the opening of the music is this kind of fill of the symbol uh, mm-hmm. the first kind of note if you will so I'm guessing just if you can take us through where each basically each sound had to go in a certain place and make sure it panned uh, properly is that is that correct to make sure it really gave this almost 360 enveloping feel right uh, right I, I should just uh, say before we get into that 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 the shot that that begins apocalypse now was was really a kind of an accidental shot uh, mm-hmm. that was uh, requested by ad flowers who was doing all of the explosions and munitions on the film and this this napalm explosion was the largest uh explosion for a film that had ever been done at that time and probably ever because now much of this would be done digitally you you wouldn't do such a big explosion uh, but in 1976 when this was shot there was you had to do it for real anyway he uh, requested this extra camera at high speed with a lot with a telephoto lens to document uh, the explosion uh, and francis saw it and just got uh, completely entranced by the shot and thought, well, this is a great beginning to the movie. So that was how the beginning of the movie happened. Um, the uh, the sound that begins the film is this is this kind of abstract sound of what might be a helicopter blade, and this was um, what we in doing the film called the ghost helicopter uh, because it was not a real helicopter. It was um, I guess the audio equivalent of a Lego kit. We we uh, analyzed all of the elements that go into what makes uh, uh, the sound of a Huey helicopter, and then we pulled those apart and tried to duplicate each one of those electronically. Um, so we had the sound of the blade electronically. We had the sound of the turbine electronically. We had the sound of the, I guess, the, the gears or the kind of metallic sound of the helicopter. Um, there were there were five or six components of it. And when you put all those together, it sort of sounded like, you know, okay, that's sort of like a real helicopter. But we could also pull them apart uh, and just have each one of these separately. And so we used the blade sound at the beginning um, to just give you this sort of unearthly, what is this kind of a sound, because you don't even see any helicopters at that point. And to right from the beginning to demonstrate to the audience the kind of 
sounds that they would be hearing and how they would be moved around the theater, I placed that sound in the right rear uh, uh, surrounds. So uh, very unusually, I think probably uniquely, uh, here's a big film and the first sound you hear comes out of the back of the theater and off to the right in addition. And then I panned that to the left in the back and then to the front. Uh, and then only when it hit the center did you see uh, the image of a helicopter and now you realize that this sound is somehow connected with uh, this strange uh, um, telephoto image uh, of a, a fragment of a helicopter. Right. And it's an unusual sequence in that it, it's actually a it's a sequence that is not uh you know most films you know they want to they want to get the audience just in the story and believe the story is is real and and moving forward but this is actually a sequence that in a in its own way does call attention to itself and tells an audience well we're going to get into the story but first we're we're going to we're also making it aware you are watching a movie and something that is different yeah uh, no it, it, uh, the the movie uh, ends it's up so, in a very a strange place, and Francis wanted the beginning of the film to give you a hint of where this film was going to go. So it's kind of like a prelude uh, in uh, for an opera, or in, in uh, yeah, for, for operas, uh, there's a prelude, uh, you know, maybe a five-minute section of music that familiarizes the audience with all of the themes that they're going to be hearing in the next two hours. And so this is visually uh, and sonically sort of the equivalent of that. Uh, plus, it, it without uh, saying it overtly, it shows you that you're going to be experiencing this all from a, from a particular point of view, which is the, the head of this sort of wasted uh, special operations uh, assassin, uh, the character of Willard. Um, and as we go through the film, in fact, everything that we see, we see because he is looking at it and he's experiencing this. So he's our guide to this uh, hellish environment. And that, that's established very clearly uh, at the beginning, what this environment is and uh, how uh, warped his particular perspective on this is. I'm curious in, in bringing up Willard, Martin Sheen's character, and uh, so so you're creating a sound, and so I'm curious about the process of his voiceover. Um, mm -hmm. um, obviously, it was recorded after the film, and so do you happen to know? I guess my question is twofold. One was his voiceover. You know, his I, I know Michael Hare came in and wrote it. So was it kind of a, a case of a uh, well, we have we we, we want to use his voiceover. But uh, is it through your editing, through the editing process, that we that y'all figured out? Well, this is a good time for a piece of uh, narration, or were there were certain scenes marked of like this will be a narrated passage? Uh, well, it, it, there was narration in the original screenplay, mm -hmm. um, so it was something that was worked out right from the beginning that this uh, this film would the the central character of this film would speak to us. Through narration, the the twist in this is that when I joined the film, uh, Francis told me that he decided not to use narration, 
Um, and I thought, oh, well, okay. Um, and I started looking at the film, and then he told me that he wanted to have the film finished by December of that year, which was 1977, uh, which was only five months away at this point. This was, and I thought, ooh, <laughs> I don't know. How, how is that possible? Because this, this is the script was shot as if there were narration, um, and now we're not going to use narration. And so I campaigned um, to restore the narration, and to the extent that I uh, uh, recorded the narration myself uh, to begin with, uh, just to show that it it could work. And um, you know, I, I sold Francis on the idea of restoring the narration, and once everyone agreed that this was a good idea. Then we brought in Michael Hare uh, to write uh, uh, narration that really fit the film uh, the way it was evolving uh, in the editorial process. And uh, obviously, we brought uh, Marty Sheen in to re-record the narration. And um, I, we, we recorded the narration very intimately, so the microphone was very close to his mouth when he spoke, and he spoke very low like this. Um, about what was going on. Um, and then in the mixing, we spread the narration out across all three speakers behind the screen, um, which allowed you, without really knowing what was going on, it clearly differentiated this sound from the dialogue of characters in the film, which mostly only came out of the center speaker. Right, right. Um I'm cu- I'm curious about th- so let's flash forward a little and uh, in a uh, redux becomes a you know starts getting underway and so what was that I mean what you know there's 49 minutes of extra footage and so did this footage have to be uh you know you know how did this footage have to be worked on was was this stuff already completed and it's just a matter of inserting it or was there actually having to to actually do sound work and and complete some of these sequences. Yes, no, uh, none of this was in any form at all. Um, uh, we uh, we went back to the original uncut negative for these scenes and reprinted the negative and retransferred the sound as, as if the film was being shot uh, at, uh, in the year 2000, which is when we were working on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I recut these new sections um, from scratch, and and we did all of the sound mixing and and uh, everything uh, from scratch, uh, and then blended it so that it uh, it fit the fabric of the existing film uh, with these new sections uh, blended in. Wow! Wow! And uh, I'm not mistaken. Was there? Was there a need for new narration or narration for those scenes? I mean, I've read, I don't know how true this is, I've read that some narration was needed and and uh, uh, Mr. Sheen's brother was used also because he was more or less a sound-alike in certain parts. Mm, no. Uh, I, uh, I don't know if that's true or not. I, yeah, no, in, uh, Marty Sheen had a heart attack during shooting. Right. And, and his brother was used uh, to... Uh, shoot some over-the-shoulder shots, uh, 
while they were trying to keep the film going as Marty got better. Uh, but in the in the in the mix, no, he didn't. Uh, Marty Sheen did all the narration, and there was a, a couple of extra lines of narration added uh, to Redux. Okay. And uh, so, when you, I mean, you've been with this film for going on 23 years now. I mean, it's uh, kind of uh, well. Uh, I take it back. Uh, 33 years you've been with this film. That's right. Uh, yeah. it, now it's in Blu-ray, uh, which is probably the best it's ever looked and sounded in a home entertainment format. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, what do you what do you think about when you when you when you look back at a film editorially and sonically? Because uh, you know, all, I I do consider the conversation uh, personally just as innovative. Uh, a film, both editorially and sonically, but obviously the conversation is a much more intimate film. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the the thing of Apocalypse Now, there's rarely been a film of this scale since it's been made. It's, it's, uh, I'm curious, what do you think when when you every now and then when you think about it, what what, what do you what pops in your mind the most? Well, we were we were. You know, all of us who were working on the film back then knew that it was an extraordinary film. Um, it was teetering on the edge of chaos all the time during shooting, and in the post-production, we tried to wrestle that chaos to the ground and and bring it uh, to a successful evolution. But while respecting its uh, sort of divine madness of the whole uh, film and the enterprise, because you know it was trying to get at. Uh, very difficult issue of uh, America's involvement in Vietnam, but also beyond that, uh, why do human beings do this crazy stuff like engage in war? And what sort of twists does this cause the human psyche to go through? So there was a there was a, you know physical, a very adventuresome physical demands. The, whole, the shooting was over. 250 days, I think, in the jungles of uh, the Philippines. Um, But there was also a a very strong psychic dimension, which came from um, the original novel, Heart of Darkness, uh, which is what the film is based on. Uh, And Francis really wanted to respect that as well, and yet also fuse it into the the present um, and hopefully the future. so you know, I'm 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 very happy that it has this long afterlife. Uh, it was not something that uh, we we could really uh, uh, forecast in any of its details in 1977 because at that point, not even the the VHS uh, home video stuff hadn't really even taken off. So the fact that we're now here, uh, you know, a generation or so later. Uh, having gone through videotape and now into DVDs and now into Blu-rays and who knows what in the future, um, I'm just very happy and, and amazed that uh, it's taken all these uh, different turns. Well, there's two questions, and one relating to Apocalypse to kind of go with this kind of controlled chaos that, you, that this production was kind of in. Is there a sequence in the film that... You know, you know, was you know, kind of the the one that, you know, was the hardest to bring together, but is also in the end, the one that when you see the film, that's the sequence you're like, you know, that's that's the one I'm that I'm proudest of, or that's that's the sequence that, you know, I worked the hardest on to come together. 
as an editor and a, and a sound designer? Mm. Well, just speaking personally, uh, it, it's, it didn't, uh, 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 it wasn't particularly hard to come together, but it was a, a scene that I suggested for the film uh, after the film was, was, while the film was being shot, and that I wrote the first draft of, which was the 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 scene where they stop a sampan in the middle of the river and there's a, something goes wrong and all of the people in the sampan get killed. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm particularly fond of that because uh, my personal involvement with the with the screenplay at that point. Um, logistically, probably the uh, the helicopter uh, attack, uh, the, oh, the whole Kilgore sequence, uh, which was um, mainly the work of Jerry Greenberg, the uh, the editor. Right. Um, Terrific editor. Uh, uh, I've spoken to this him one? before. I've spoken to him before. He's a terrific editor. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that was really where the where you really felt the power of of this whole sound format that we developed uh, in a in a you know, very complicated action sequence. Um, well, you know, the the beginning uh, because it really is sort of a f- is free form filmmaking. Um, the fact that it comes off as well as it does is uh, you know I'm, I'm ha- happy with. Right. Well, and here's my last question. This is not apocalypse now related, but this is something I've always wanted to ask. Uh, uh, you know, someone who's you know a real pioneer in this field, and then. I am curious on the way certain uh, uh, editing jobs and also sound jobs don't seem to get noticed uh, either critically or even by uh, certain sections of, of, of the peer groups. And that I was wondering if, if you think that maybe if uh, we run if, if you if we run the risk of just because uh, a film is edited real quick and fast or if a sound mix is you know loud and overpowering mm-hmm. that that gets mistaken for well it must be you know uh, a superior work as opposed to something that's you know subtle and almost yeah. invisible and I bring this up recently because I've been um I've been doing a a, a continuing series on um on on, on David Finch's work and the impetus was the social network which uh for my mind i've seen the film twice i'm going to see it a lot more a couple more times and it seems to be one of the most sophisticated editing jobs and sound design jobs i've seen all year but it's one that's not obtrusive and and Mm -hmm. calls attention to itself and it seems to me that 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 doesn't seem to be valued as much i was wondering if you shared that point of view yeah I, i i would say that's uh Generally, what uh, what happens uh, if you look at all the films that win best sound? Uh, it's usually <coughs> war films or films with lots of explosions and gunfire in them, or right. they are musicals. Um, so, the, and this is voting that's being done by industry professionals. So even we, who are the industry professionals, tend to say, "Yeah, the the film that." has the best sound is the loudest sound that's got the most explosions uh, or singing in it 
Um, and that's, you know, as you just indicated, absolutely not the case. That uh, you know, I, I, I greatly admire the work that uh, uh, Angus Wall uh, and his team did on social network in the editing, and that Ren Kleiss and his team did in the sound mm-hmm. on the film. Um, I think it's a fantastic uh, job for exactly the reasons that you that you said, um, and it's just. Uh, you know, I think it's just part of human nature, and I'm kind of resigned to it. I don't, I don't think it'll ever appreciably change, and it, that's partly also good because, you know, the the editing of a film, the picture editing, and the and particularly the sound uh, use of sound can have a tremendous influence on the audience, um, but it can have that kind of influence precisely because they're, the audience is not really aware of how it is influencing them. So I, I actually wouldn't want the audience to be over-conscious of the kind of things that are going on editorially or in sound, because to become too conscious of it, that would, in fact, reduce uh, the power of what it is that we're doing 